Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Defending Carol Ann Fugate In 1958, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather went on a two-week murder spree that paralyzed a nation. Ten innocent lives were lost, including that of a two-year-old girl, who was the half-sister of his companion, 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. After all these years, a question still remains. Was Carol Ann a willing accomplice or a hostage? A question that would come up again decades later with Patty Hearst. Nebraska attorney John MacArthur took up the defense of Carol Ann Fugate in her murder trial. His son James would later join him in the 18-year quest for justice for their client. In his book, Pro Bono, the 18-year defense of Carol Ann Fugate, John's grandson and James's son, Jeff, offers an inside look at this fascinating murder case. I, I took the, the story for granted because of the fact that I grew up with it. I mean, it was still going on uh, when I was a little child. Uh, the, the the girl that he was representing was was uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but she was found guilty and and then and was uh, sentenced to life in prison, and uh, my grandfather was still representing her. Uh, basically, after she went to prison, he felt that she had been so railroaded by the system that that he continued to represent her pro bono, meaning uh, for no money, he, he didn't charge anybody for it. Continued to represent her uh, ongoing uh, to try to get her out of prison for all those years, uh, and so it was still going on when I was a little kid in the 1970s when I was born. Uh, so I just kind of grew up knowing about it. I knew the the girl now woman now at that time being a grown woman um, because she was uh, even let out to to uh, spend time with him and his family and all that sort of thing, and then had to go back into the uh, prison. Uh, so yeah, so I just kind of took it for granted as, oh, this is just grandpa's work. This is my dad's work. Cause he had become a lawyer by that point and they managed to get her uh, out of prison during that time. And then there was a movie made about it and then different movies were made about it and different, uh, albums and all that sort of things wound up being like this big cultural kind of phenomenon that it was by the time I was a teenager, I started realizing, oh, this is kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, in fact, at some point I saw it on national news and apparently that was the time I turned to my mom and went, I didn't realize this was such a big deal. Um, but I still didn't do anything about it. I, I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to get into films and books and that sort of thing. Went off, did my own thing. And then after a number of, of years or even decades, uh, I kind of circled back around and realized, you know, maybe people because I realized what a unique perspective I had on this here. This thing was written, like I say, written into books and movies and all that. But 
I knew all these aspects of the case that nobody else knew. I would come home to my dad's place and there would be these files of, that would say Carol Fugate on them. And I'd realize, oh, you know, this is stuff that other people would be uh, fascinated by. And here I am just sort of walking by it in the garage. Uh, my grandfather, ironically, always lived near the penitentiary. Um, but, the, you know, and, and a lot of the prisoners didn't know it. But after this case, when it be- he became famous... Uh, or he became famous for the case, prisoners would, as they were being driven out to like the fields to work, they would attach a, uh, a note to a brick and throw it into his yard. And a lot of his uh, his cases he would get from those, you know, bricks that were <laughs> thrown into his yard. Oh. So. Well, that, there you go. That's kind of a different referral base. So let's go right <laughs> to the, let's go to the top and talk about the characters involved. We have Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann mm-hmm. Fugate. Well, yeah, this um, essentially they, these two kids started dating or uh, she was definitely a kid. She was 14. He was 19. So he was legally an adult. He was a garbage man. And but he started dating this little girl uh, and they, um, you know, basically like were you know, regular kids. He was kind of the bad boy. And, you know, uh, she was a regular kind of short 14. I mean, she was even short for a 14 year old. But he was, you know, very rough, actually had uh, sort of some, he had a lot of problems. He had some mental problems. He had physical disabilities and a lot of things that today you would be able to get help for. But in those days, it was kind of people making fun of him. He was pigeon toed. He had bright red hair. Uh, he spoke with a, a stutter, a stutter and a stammer. He just really, you know, had difficulty speaking, very insecure, you know, all that sort of thing, but big and, and strong, kind of a lot of the bad, you know, a lot of combinations that kind of come together um obsessed with guns and knives and you know that sort of thing um and carol at a certain point started realizing she was more mature than him he was you know supposed to be the adult but uh he liked to play you know uh cops and robbers cowboys and indians you know he basically liked to do all the things that like six and seven year olds would like to do uh so she broke up with him and then a few days later she came home to find that her parents were missing and charlie was just in there in their home and he said he told her that uh, he, he, some of his friends had them tied up, uh, and, you know, at this other place and he had, she had to do everything that he told her to do, or he was going to call his friends and have them killed. Uh, and he'd also threatened to kill her as well if she didn't do everything he said. So basically for the next couple of weeks, uh, they just sort of disappeared. There was, you know, nobody knew exactly what happened to them. Uh, and his family started going out looking for him her fa- uh, uh, her sister uh, and her sister's uh, husband started questioning you know what's going on and she kept she had a note out of the from the door that said everybody's sick with the flu go, go away everyone's sick with the flu and then underlined three times it said Miss Bartlett which was a clue she was trying to give to everybody because the only Miss Bartlett was her two-year-old half-sister who was according to what she knew kidnapped and, you know, held somewhere for ransom. So, uh, you know, and so her other, her family and his family, actually her grandmother also saw it as well, saw the note as well. They all started going to the police and saying, something's going on over there. You need to go and do something about it. But this was, you know, again, this is the 50s. You have, uh, you know, a lot of the elitism 
that we still see today was much more, you know, pronounced at that time. And there was kind of a north of O Street, south of O Street mentality, kind of like the bad side of the tracks, good side of the tracks. And so they were just like, ah, you know, stop. They, they, they didn't, you know, police didn't want to go and bother with anything there. Uh, and finally, they got convinced to, you know, go and check it out. Uh, and when they did, they you know, knocked at the door. <clears throat> uh, Carol showed up at the door and each person she'd, she'd greet, she'd say they were sick with the flu. But she put her hand in front of her mouth and be pointing off to the side. And the police just did not even check it out. Didn't, you know, they were, okay, nothing's wrong here. And the grandmother who was with them was like, hey, she was, you know, signaling to you, do something about it. And they're like, no, no, you're just a crazy old lady. It sent her away. And then Charlie's brother and Carol's brother-in-law finally showed up at the house. Uh, they were gone. The, the, the two were gone. And they went, what was it? They, they um, ended up basically going to the backyard, found a chicken coop and found the bodies of their of Carol's two parents and her half-sister all you know, uh, all back there. They had all been killed. And the details of which are that Carol Ann's mother and stepfather were shot and her two-year-old uh, half-sister, um, Betty Jean, was strangled and stabbed to death. And the body count uh, began to climb quite rapidly. Uh, over the next several days, essentially, the police started finding out about murders out first outside of town. Uh, and at one point, they saw school several school books of, of one of the victims um, along the road. And those, they were discarded along the road leading into Lincoln. You know, basically like they, somebody had thrown them and they'd fallen out in that direction. And they had the wise decision to then go, well, they must have gone further away from Lincoln. For some reason, rather than following where the clues went, you know, directed them, they went the, literally the exact opposite direction. Well, then uh, a wealthy family was murdered in Lincoln. And suddenly now the police became very, very concerned because, you know, as long as it was happening to poor people, they were very slow to react. But now you had some of the most prominent wealthy people in town were, were murdered. So... They showed up, they, you know, checked everywhere. And up to this point, they were believing Carol had been uh, his, Charlie's um, oh, uh, victim, that he was basically had her kidnapped and he was probably going to, they, they were figuring they'd just find her body somewhere. But at one point they smelled perfume in the air and they went only a woman or only a female would have thought to, pro to put perfume in the air just to hide the smell. No, no man would think of to do that. So they just concluded that she must be part of this and they, uh, at that point, charged her with accessory to murder and then went westward and traveled all the way up to Wyoming, uh, where he killed one more person. It was a man, a uh, traveling uh, salesman who was stopped along the side of the road, sleeping. Charlie went up, killed him, then tried to use the car and found out why he was parked along the side of the road. The car wasn't working. Um, another person pulled up, didn't know he was a murderer, just sort of pulled up, saw this guy trying to work a car and went up, you know, offered to help. Charlie pulled a gun on him and the two started wrestling and Charlie was getting ready to kill yet another person. When Carol saw a police car pulling up, but it was the police car was behind a truck and didn't see what was happening. So she sprinted to them, jumped into the police car and said, that's Charlie. Star you know, started screaming so much that they couldn't understand her until she said, Charlie Starkweather. And finally the police, you know, police officer understood 
And Charlie saw what was happening, jumped in his car, zipped away. The officer then called for, forward to other officers to chase. And this wound up being one of those things you expect to see in movies. It was over 100 miles an hour, racing through, you know, country roads into a town. They had to slow down when they went into a town, got so close that the bumpers locked with each other for a little bit, then got further out in the country. Guys are leaning out the window and shooting. Uh, finally, they managed to uh get him to stop when one of the bullets just nicked his ear and he pulled over and he just uh what was ran out of the car screaming holding his ear that you know here he was shot he's hurt Um, but later with the papers then reported was uh, m- murderous couple captured and they didn't report the fact that Carol actually had jumped out of the, the out of Charlie's car and run to the police officer that just never even got mentioned uh, nor that she was telling them all the things that happened and every her entire story matched all the physical evidence Charlie's own story when he was first questioned matched her story exactly as well that she had he had taken her hostage and taking him along and uh you know told her that he would murder her family if she didn't do what he said and in fact the first question she asked everybody else was where's my family are they okay they charged uh, both of them with murder before catching them before having all the information i mean you know responsible police work would be to say in fact that's what people you typically say even to this day a mass murderer goes in shoots a bunch of people even after they capture the person red-handed they see the person doing it they still say the suspect the suspect this the subject suspect that and we watch going what do you mean suspect that's clearly the guy but that's for legal reasons nowadays it'd be like you are innocent until proven guilty but at that time they were just like no we're charging this person you know before we know you know all the information so she was charged with uh with uh assisting or um being part of the murders before they ever captured them so from that moment forward the district attorney never looked at it from the point of view of was she perhaps a hostage it was we've determined that she is uh his it, she was his accomplice and we're just going to go with that and any evidence that comes out that shows otherwise we're going to just discard that in fact one thing was there was a note found in her that would have proven that she was or at least been evidence that she was looking for help it actually was her, her writing help you know do not ignore you know carol uh, was still in her pocket, and they found it, and then that note conveniently disappeared before it ever got made, got it to uh, a what do you call it to a lawyer. Um, so in the beginning, she didn't, as I remember, she was again being fourteen, and yes, more mature than him, but because she <laughs> knew in her heart what her involvement was, that she was very confused when she started being treated not as a victim but as 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 a suspect, right? Right, exactly. Well, in fact, actually, at first, she was just she's just simply telling them everything that they want to know. Uh, nobody informed her that she was being charged with murder. They just started questioning her uh, that the charges were already existing. And, you know, here comes the district attorney shows up and starts asking her questions. And at no point did anybody say, you know, you have the right to an attorney, you know, and, and these charges have been levied against you. Anything like that. They just started asking her what what's going on. And she just openly said here's what happened and she went she told the whole story beginning to end exactly the same every single time she was asked and they would just grill her and sit there with her for hours 
try to break her story. And she's, as far as she knows, they're just wanting to get the details of the story. So she just keeps telling them each time what happened. And of course, what they're gathering from her is, well, you were there with them. You went and did this with them. You did that with them. Uh, and she's just simply saying, well, yeah, I did these things. But of course, her reasoning was never, you know, they never asked the question, why were, you know, why didn't you run? Which, of course, was simply she was too scared to. She was a little 14 year old girl uh, being watched over by this, you know, large man. Now, they, I'm, uh, they, the, the trials were separate, correct? They did not try them together? Correct. Exactly. Uh, in fact, actually trying him first helped them to convict her. And throughout all this, she still does not have an attorney of any kind, does she? After she got to Lincoln, they didn't give her an attorney for a while until some, you know, uh, the bar complained. And then she was given a, the, the head of uh, Wesleyan University was then appointed to her and uh, was, uh, you know, to, to basically be there at, at her arraignment. And she's still kind of like, you know, with what's going on. And my, you know, grandfather was appointed and he's, he's like, yeah, this is, you know, what's happening. Um, and even then they were trying to appoint my grandfather's partner who they knew was not would not he he was not really the known for being like that uh, um, what do you call it uh, that dedicated of an attorney he was really almost more doing it as a, um, I don't want to say as a hobby but he was it was something he was he was not known as being the better lawyer let me put it that way uh, but he happened to be out on safari and my grandfather basically answered the phone he says okay I'll take it and then he went in and once he started hearing Carol what you know Carol was telling him about what happened. He became, you know, he, he, that's when he really became convinced that this is the girl who was kidnapped, not a, you know, this is not an, a, a, an accessory. And then when he went to the prosecutor, they, the prosecutor was a friend of his, and he was just kind of like, hey, you know, here's what's really going on. You can see the evidence there. And he saw immediately that they were just like, nope, we're going to convict her anyway. And he, he immediately knew they didn't care about actually finding out the truth. They were just interested in convicting this other person. Um, because it would make them look good, quite like, and and she also had the signs that they did not do a good job because she was by this point saying like part of her story was leaving all these clues that they didn't follow up, and there was already a a um, was a federal investigation into the police to find out hey why didn't you catch this guy when he murdered somebody in December let alone he got away with killing so many people during this time period how did you not catch this so. Basically, to avoid blame, they uh, they were basically making her the scapegoat and going, let's distract everybody by pointing the finger at her kind of thing. Now, how what was his, the nature of his trial? I'm assuming he did not plead, and there was a a, a jury trial of his of his murder uh, uh, charge. Correct. Yeah, he uh, he pled not guilty, and he he said that it was all because of uh, self defense, and he tried to plead the self defense. He might have been able to get life in prison had he gone for the uh, insanity plea because he was a perfect case for insanity. He he clearly had mental issues and all that sort of thing. Um, but he had too much pride, and his family had too much pride, and they were like, "No, we will not, you know, allow you to do the insanity plea." <clears throat> so Charlie's lawyer decided his the way he then defended Charlie was by saying it was all Carol's idea. Carol was the one who was this 14, even though she's a 14-year-old girl, 
they uh he just was like well she she isn't uh, insane like my client or he she isn't you know she's got a, her mental facilities much more better than his so she must have been behind everything and the prosecuting attorneys rather than uh fighting against that they they went right along with it they're like well charlie's going to be convicted regardless so we'll just go along with what they're saying about it being all carol's idea and because we're going to convict we're going to charge her next and so you got you had this whole trial of Charlie, which really kind of became more of a trial of Carol, uh, with no with her having no defense there, and it getting into the end because everybody in Nebraska was watching this case. Hell, people across the world were watching this case. This 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 made news across you know across the globe. Uh, even um, oh, is it uh, oh, uh, uh, what's his name? Peter uh, Peter Jackson, who later did the Lord of the Rings series. The movie he did just before that was supposed to be about a couple of characters, a couple of people, basically copycat killers of Charles Starkweather. Uh, and he wrote that while he was in New Zealand. So it was like people from all over the, the globe were seeing about the story. And so obviously you had, you know, there was now now no jury who was going to look at Carol uh, fairly after that, you know, after Charlie's trial. Now he's convicted and sentenced to death. Correct. Yeah, sitting in the electric chair. Uh, and he, you know, funny enough, he loved the prosecuting attorney. He thought the, the prosecuting attorney was just uh, the bomb. He, he thought he was so needy when he was ever he was on the witness stand for his own trial and for Carol's trial. He just would smile. And, you know, like any time that his attorney would come up, he just like shrank and just like uh, he had no respect for the guy. But this guy who was looking to Elmer Shield, whose first introduction to him was, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you're in the electric chair. Charlie's like, great, cool. And he just really always enjoyed talking to this guy. Uh, and yeah, they, they, they managed to um, uh, find him guilty, uh, send him to the electric chair, which Charlie didn't even fight until it came near the end. And then he tried to uh, sort of trade deals, go, look, I will uh, testify against Carol if you put a good word in for me to you know, maybe not get the electric chair uh, later on. And they said, oh, we'll see what we can do. Then he, you know, he testified so, against Carol, but they still give him the electric chair. So in the beginning, though, he his story, he was a little he was sympathetic to Carol. I mean, his attorneys, of course, were, you know, were trying to make it look like Carol because it worked for, you know, to try to mitigate. But he was uh, sympathetic and he wasn't really trying to, quote, you know, pardon the pun, hang her. Uh, Charlie wasn't in the beginning. It, it, am I reading well. that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. When they were very first uh, taken into custody, um, his story matched hers exactly. He said, no, she was, you know, with me. She didn't, I, I mean, I, I kidnapped her. She, you know, I made her do everything that she did. And, you know, I told her that her parents were, uh, uh, what do you call it, were being held hostage and, you know, all everything. They said exactly that story. Um, but then the uh, prosecutors who were trying to get Charlie, to, they kept saying, well, no, well, didn't she go along with you? Like, no, no, no. She she was complete. And they kept trying to ask him, you know, trying to trying to push him to say that uh, she was with him willingly and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he just wouldn't do it until at some point one of them went into him and said, because of the fact that he kept saying, I'm not insane, I'm not insane, I'm not insane. One of them then went into Charlie's cell and said, hey, you know, Carol's calling you insane. And Charlie immediately said, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what really happened. And that's when his story started changing. But every single time he told the story, it was a different story. The only time when he told it consistently was when he was telling, you know, the story that, that she wasn't there, you know, uh, willingly or whatever. 
Again, Charlie uh, testifies uh, not to, to Carol's benefit, and she is uh, convicted of not uh, first degree murder, I guess, but murder in the conviction or in the uh, um, uh, yeah, while doing a crime of a and a robbery. Right. And so that's a different level of, of murder. So she does not, she's not eligible. Would she at that age be eligible for execution in Nebraska at that time? Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, that's what one thing they went for was uh, they they said, you know, in fact, during the final um, what do you call it, closing argument, uh, the prosecuting attorney, Elmer Shield, said the uh, the what do you call it, he, he you know presented the case and he said the um, oh what do you call it the the punishment I leave to you. He at no point said I mean, he could have taken it off the table um, definitely. Um, he could have said, uh, you know, okay, we want to convict her, but don't, you know, give her the death penalty or anything like that. But instead he said, the, the punishment I leave to you. So he was leaving on the table to execute a 14-year-old child uh, for murder when he never really had any actual evidence. Um, in fact, she was never really charged for one of the murders. It was it was in helping. Yeah, like you say, in, in the perpetration. The only reason why she was eligible is because at that point, uh, assisting somebody's murder was was treated exactly the same way as if you murdered them wow. yourself. And for her, one of the parts of the story uh, and one of the things that makes this whole story unique is that she never uh, disregarded, you know, the, there was never any argument as to what happened. She was there with Charlie. She did at one point when he said, hold this gun on this person, she did. And the, the whole issue is what, you know, the reason why she did. Um, he gave her a gun that was unloaded and jammed actually had been damaged when he, he killed uh, somebody's dog uh, during one of these murders uh, and it had broken. And so he gave her that gun that couldn't, you know, do anything. But and he said, you know, point that at at this person and that, you know, while I take this other person, around, you know, around this corner. Um, and so, she, you know, she did for the short time. And then he took this, uh, you know, the other person with them and you know murdered them both. So then the question becomes, is that, uh, you know, are you going to or is that itself uh, accessory to murder? And to me, that's one of the things that makes this whole story fascinating is the fact that we all have to, to question ourselves of like, at what point do we consider something to be uh, murder? At what point do we consider something actually being an accessory? If you're, if, if somebody points a gun at you and says, do this thing or I kill you, she, you know, being a scared child, she uh, goes, okay, I'll do what he tells me to do. Um, but at no point, even, even under those circumstances and under no point did she murder anybody, nor was she ever even accused of it. There are many rumors that she murdered people, and there's all kinds of crazy stories that say she did this, she did that. But the police never even suggested that she actually ever killed anybody. It was always, well, she, you know, uh, she helped him in this way or that way kind of a thing. And so, of course, she like we she is convicted. Uh, I'm going to guess she was devastated. Um, yeah. Oh, but yeah. and your fa your grandfather stayed with the case after his state payment uh, for his services uh, ended. Right. Well, in fact, actually, uh, the, he actually never accepted the, the payment because the, with um, the, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the judge got to determine how much everybody was paid. Uh, 
and he and how many attorneys each person get, got to have. So they gave he gave Charlie two attorneys. So two attorneys were allowed to represent this guy who everybody knew killed at least several people. I mean, he was clearly a mad killer. Got two attorneys who were paid twice the amount. Each one was paid twice the amount that they paid my grandfather, and they didn't allow my grandfather's partner to be a part of it. They didn't allow another attorney to be a part of it. They were like, no, it's only you. You're the only one who's going to be able to represent represent her. And he was so insulted by, first of all, he was appalled by the way they treated Carol, and then insulted that they would pay him half of what they paid each of the others and would never allow him to have a, you know somebody assist them on the case. They literally, the judge literally uh, – uh, made it uh, against the rules that he would not be disallowed him to have any uh, assistance on the on the case. Um, so uh, so yeah, he was just he was so appalled by it. and it was very clear that you know, the judge was helping him. And in fact, I got confirmation from one of the assistant DAs that the judge actually behind the scenes was actually helping the district attorney uh, ensure a conviction. Uh, but he stayed with Carol and he continued to. Uh, represent her while she went to prison uh, and then continued to like fight for a uh, retrial basically. And he ended up being in a whole 18 year process before he never even did get a, a retrial. What he ended up getting was a, um, Oh, what do you call it? A reduction in her sentence. Now, what, again, the, the appeals and the, and the heartbreak uh, are in the book. So the appeals process of this case went through the time period that a lot of things we take for granted today uh, came about because it was during the you know uh, 1960s you had all of these decisions and, and the thing is before this before these cases came along uh, there was a separation between state cases and federal cases in the federal cases you had all of these constitutional rights but in the states uh, in state cases you were not guaranteed those rights so while you know we think of it as being oh you have a right to a fair trial here well there was no guarantee to a right to a fair trial in a state. Uh, case, you actually had more rights uh, if you committed a federal crime than if you created committed a state crime because of the fact that you had then had federal rights guaranteed to you. But your states could do all kinds of things that you know didn't matter or that, um, that wouldn't help you. And so, uh, or that that would work against you. And so, when you had a lot of these cases come along, like Miranda, like uh, Escobedo. Suddenly now, uh, the, a lot of these state cases became – a lot of the federal rights that we enjoy became state rights. And so that's, oh, that's why uh, nowadays you have to have a Miranda rights. You have to have the right to an attorney. They have to tell you when they're charging you with something. Um, but that all came after Carol had been convicted. So a lot of what my father and grandfather were doing during the appeal process was trying to get these attorney uh, – trying to get the, the courts to – uh, recognize those rights as what's the, there's a word for it, but basically have them exist before. Say, you know, hey, they, they, these should have existed in the 1950s, so therefore our uh, our clients. Retro, have ret them. I think they and retroactive. Retroactive. There, yeah. there we go. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. the word. Yes, they they were trying to make it retroactive, so that uh, you know, so that they so that would apply to Carol's case, but they you know they refused to, and that was why they they couldn't get the appeal. So here Carol was, a 14-year-old girl, and 
uh, you know, there are a lot of things that should be considered uh, about it. Like, for instance, uh, my my grandfather, one of the first things he wanted to do was uh, have it placed in juvenile court. Have the you know, case involves juvenile, so it should be in juvenile court. Uh, the judge refused it because of the seriousness of the crimes, et cetera, et cetera. And here's the thing: she, since her, uh, since her mother was dead, her stepfather was the other person who was murdered. She still had a father, but he was no good. He was basically one of those drunk fathers who's out of the picture. Uh, so she had nowhere to go. Uh, so they placed her in. They did not have a juvenile hall at the time, so they put her into this psychiatric ward. Uh, and then, um, before her court date, before her court date, they cut her hair so that she would look older. So the moment my grandfather saw her, he was appalled that she was – that just the haircut alone made her look 10 years older. And like, oh, well, yeah, she belongs in regular adult court and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's the kinds of things that they would pull as a way of – it was very clearly the, the state was – or the uh, – yeah, the prosecution and the, just basically the entire – I don't want to say police – essentially the, those uh, involved in law enforcement – we're trying to get this girl convicted, for, you know, child convicted uh, when, you know, just basically to cover their own butts. Uh, by the time her trial was done, she had turned 15 uh, and you could not be in the general population in prison until 17. So she spent two years in isolation. So she was placed in in uh, in the prison and literally placed in uh, so, uh, what is it called? Um. Well, basically what is typically considered torture in isolation. Um, usually prisoners are put into isolation as punishment, but she was just placed in there, you know, all alone as a teenager for two years. Um, the only person, people coming in to, to allowed to see her were the warden, uh, any workers, you know, that were, that were there and uh, her attorneys who, again, that's part of the reason my grandfather did not abandon her was because he saw the appalling uh, conditions they were putting her in. Um, and uh, so he, yeah, he kept on with her. And even though it was driving out to where, where she was put into prison was uh, in York. She wasn't, there was no women's reformatory in Lincoln. So she had to be sent to York, which was about uh, an hour and a half drive, maybe two hours at the time. My mother as well, who my mother would go out there once she, uh, you know, got to know my dad was dating him and then married him. Uh, he took her out there to, to visit Carol a few times. And so she got to know Carol rather well. And so whenever I would ask my father uh, about this case, he, um, you know, it was really, again, I don't mean to make it sound like he doesn't notice emotion, but at the same time, he just kind of, he, he didn't, I think it's a generational thing is that those two generations of men for the most part were just like, oh yeah, I guess she was feeling this way or that way or whatever. Um, whereas my mom and Nina Beaver both very much noticed the way she was. So any of the personal aspects of her, you know, generally came from them. But although the way that my mom and, and Nina both described Carol uh, was uh, typically um, that she was somebody who had a lot of pride. And so when she would see you, she would, you know, kind of hide any emotions she had. But after she'd be talking to you for a while, especially with my mother who got this way, she would kind of open up about her feelings. But it was one of those things where her she had so much been taught by her mother to hide her emotions that she um, you kind of sucked them up. And in fact, actually, it's somewhat of what got her convicted is uh, for the most pretty much all the jury afterwards. What they said was, well, she looked guilty because she she spoke very robotically. And in fact, if you look at 
footage uh, of theirs actual blood. It's, it's the very first murder case that actually um, there was an, a televised interview with her uh, where Ninette Beaver spoke with her. Um, and she speaks very robotically, very firmly. And that came from her mother always reminding her, uh, you've got to, you know, don't let anybody rattle you. You've got to, you know, be firm if somebody's, you know, trying to rattle you or whatever, just, you know, show pride and all that sort of thing. Why do you think he would even implicate you in that if you didn't have anything at all to do with it? Why do you think he'd want to implicate you? Well, by now, I'm sure he hates me. Or running away. He's trying to make it look like I'm just guilty and fear. Had you gone with him for quite a while? Yes, I'd went with him a year before, and then I told him I didn't want to see him again, but he came back. And after that Sunday, I'd went with him, and then I kept telling him to leave. And at that Sunday, I told him to leave, and I told him I didn't ever want to see him again. Why? What had, uh, what had brought you to this conclusion? Why didn't you want to go with him anymore? I think he's crazy. Although your uh, father, your grandfather, and your father continued to work uh, on Carol Ann's uh, behalf for 18 years, she, of course, uh, grew up in prison, and she also um, became resigned to a long uh, prison stay and and sort of tried to make the best of it. One time, I had, you know, started to feel that. You know, it's just, it's just too hard to do. You know, it's really, it's just too hard to do. I'm not going to make it, you know. And uh, it started to show. Uh, my face started to show. My hair started to show. It just started to show that I was going through a difficult period when I thought, you know, uh, what is the use? You know, I'm just not going to make it. And uh, Mrs. Crawford, the assist, uh, superintendent, she said, come here, Carol. She said, I want to show you something. And she took me by the hand, and she went in, and she said, look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror, and I cried, because I looked like I was just going downhill. This is what I mean. If she didn't care, uh, she could have said, fine, you know, just look the way you do. You know, uh, go on down here. I don't care. But she didn't. She cared enough to show me what I needed to do. She literally was the gate girl. In other words, she had the key to her own escape. They literally trusted her with the key to the front gate. She would let people in and out, and she just continued to have the key. She also gave tours. And when you think, you know, why would anybody take a tour of a prison? Well, this was the prison of the infamous Carol Fugate. And people would, you know, come to see this, you know, one prisoner, not knowing that the person giving the tour was literally the girl they had come to see. And she went by a different name because she didn't want them to know. But she, <laughs> uh, and they would be like, you know, and she would let them in and out. And nobody suspected because it's like nobody's thinking this, you know, the, this, uh, girl who uh or this one you know this young woman who has the key to her own escape would be the and so they all expected her to be this ruthless killer that they had all built up in their minds but eventually yeah essentially this, this case got all the way to the u.s supreme court and they they lost being able to argue in front of them by a single vote 
Uh, my father actually ended up being the youngest person in history, at least up to that point, to um, to argue in front of them. Uh, and unfortunately, he got you know he got shut down, uh, shot down, and so he had no more legal recourse to have another court case. And frankly, Farrell wanted would rather have had a, a another case instead of uh, instead of just getting parole. Somebody had just opened the door and said, you know what, Carol, you're free to go. She wouldn't have wanted to. The reason she was dedicated to having another trial because she wanted to prove that she wasn't guilty. Um, but unfortunately, it just didn't happen. Uh, and so uh, once uh, so what they did was they instead went for a. Um, oh, yeah, basically re- reduction in sentence and then to get on, on parole, because essentially if they could give it to have it be like, OK, 30, I think I think it's 50 percent of the time or something. Like that. So 36 right. years in prison. So 18 years. You now, know, what was that? What was the um, the grounds? It was at a very specific, narrow grounds that was trying to be argued by your father at the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, with essentially the, you know, overall, but up to that point, it was that she had gotten railroad and stuff. But once she and of course, they were they were oftentimes trying to uh, emphasize the all these changes in the laws should be retroactively uh given to those people you Mm -hmm. know those rights should be given to those in the past so when they went to the supreme court it was very specifically regarding uh i believe it was the miranda case but uh, in general it was these uh, these other people now enjoy these rights on the states it should be retroactively applied to someone that's not even 10 you know the, the case wasn't even 10 years before that happened um you know, and so that was what he was going. And the, the the main reason that they didn't get it to, uh, heard in the Supreme Court was because typically the Supreme Court has it has to be something that that deals with it's like a general thing that's going to affect all people across the U.S. And my my father uh, strongly believed that it would actually, and I do think it it, it would affect because of the fact that you know it, it really asked the question well. If a law is passed, I mean, really, actually, you know, if he had I'm, I'm just now thinking of this, I hadn't thought of this before. But uh, if if he had been able to get through to the Supreme Court and argue the case and if they had said yes to that, uh, then you probably have a lot of people in states right now where marijuana is being legalized uh, coming going out of prison you know, right. because there are a lot of people still in prison yep. right now who, who are put in prison because they, you know, were smoking marijuana where it's now not, le- you know, where, where it wasn't legal at the time, and now it's legal, and it's like they're still serving time for something that is now legal. That's tech- that is literally what he was arguing, uh, trying to argue, and it, because they didn't hear the case, you now don't have that as a precedent. So, so let's talk a little bit. Uh, we'll we'll get back to to Carol and her coming out, and uh, thankfully. Uh, uh, fading into somewhat obscurity. Let's talk about the cul- <laughs> the cultural aspect. We have the movie Badlands mm-hmm. with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, which what I read about, it was well-received. Um, it started yes. out at a art festival, and then w- one of the bigger <laughs> uh, 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 studios picked it up and did you know a regular. So um, tell us a little bit about Badlands. So yeah, Terrence Malick, uh, you know, he was a young director and he wanted to do, he had a couple of ideas of films he wanted to do. And he, he was mentioning them to a lawyer uh, friend of his who happened to know my grandfather for some reason. I knew him because of uh, something involving PBS or something like that. But anyway, uh, he's, and, and Terrence said that he would, he, he's like interested in doing something that was inspired by the, uh, 
the Starkweather murders. And the guy said, well, I happen to know the attorney of Carol Fige. Would you like to meet him? So I said, sure. So they flew out to Lincoln, met with my grandfather, met with my dad. And while they were talking with them, one of them, and I think it was my dad, uh, suggested, hey, would you like to meet Carol? We could just drive out there. So they did. They went went out to there, and Terry met with uh, with Carol. And uh, oh, what was it? Um, and he, he, as they were driving out there, he said, I don't want to do this movie if she says she doesn't want it made. Hmm. Which is, to me, I've always found that to be an unusual kind of thing because the movie is, I mean, it's just barely inspired by the story. It is not the true story at all. Uh, and in fact, he he changed the names and you know all sort of thing, and he didn't he uh, he did not make it you know the story of this or whatever. Um, but he just you know he he was such a moral kind of person, and he just felt that which is something very much missing from Hollywood today. Uh, but he's like, no, I, I really want to make sure that this is something that she'd be okay with. So they went out there and they were chatting, and and she looked in his eyes at one point and said, you know what, I can see in your eyes that you're a moral man, and it's okay for you to make this movie. Uh, and so he did, he went out, he made it and, uh, you know, and, and again, it was more, I discussed it with him, uh, years later and he, he basically said that he was, he was more interested in the, um, oh, was it, uh, the, the idea of, uh, youth violence, of violence and youth, you know, that was really more of a study of, of, uh, violence and youth. And in his, you know, in his version the the girl still is not guilty of of you know doing anything but she is much more passive um you know it, it's the killer who is the one who goes around killing people and all sort of thing and she's more kind of um zoned by it if you will mm-hmm. uh but anyway so yeah he's um so like i say it was almost more of a like like all of terry's films it's almost more po- uh, more of a poem than it is a, a story uh and when he was finished it he took it to one of the very first screenings he had of it he took it to york uh and this is again how much they trusted carol they would let her go out with my dad with my grandfather um and in this particular case they let her they didn't have the, the screening in the prison they had the screening at the local movie theater and she just they let her go with martin and terry and my dad and they all went into the theater they sat down all together and they watched badlands together and at one particular point i uh, she just reached out and smacked martin i uh, and he was just a random part during the movie she just smacked him really hard one time and he he was baffled by it but after the movie as they're leaving i uh, uh, he, he asked her, why did you hit me just then? And she goes, because that's the one part of the movie where you completely got Charlie down. And if you ever see the movie, it's basically he walks off. He's mad you know, at uh, Holly, you know, the other the character is supposed to be uh, inspired by Carol. And he goes off and he just starts punching the air. And she's and that's when she punched him. And she's like, that right there, that was Charlie Sarkweather. That was him to a T. Wow. Um, and in uh, music, we have a line in Billy Joel's uh, recitative song, We Didn't Start the Fire. He mentions stark weather uh, murders. And then uh, st- even stranger, uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, sort of wrote a whole album, Nebraska. And uh, the title song is about uh, the relationship between stark weather and Carol Ann. And he wrote the entire album, Nebraska, inspired by the case, which, while it's fascinating, at the same time, I've always wanted to talk to him about it because I've always been baffled by that because uh, it, he still tells it from Charlie's point of view. And in fact, Carol was very hurt by the song because it's a, it's, 
um, you know, in it, he says, we went out and we had us some fun. And, you know, it's, it's basically Charlie's point of view, or it's really his, um, it is an accurate portrayal of Charlie's uh, mental state in that he thought Carol was having fun with him, even during the whole thing, even knowing that he, that he had kidnapped her, he still thought, well, I forced her into going out and having fun with me. He was just completely oblivious to that. And so, and so Bruce Springsteen's song Nebraska is really the, an exploration of a person who is not mentally capable of understanding, no, this person doesn't want to be there with you uh, while you go around killing people. Uh, let us also speak about, we talked about a little bit uh, before we went on air, about um, uh-huh. your, your feeling about your grandfather and the book and movie To Kill a Mockingbird. My father always said, if you ever want to know anything about uh, my, uh, about your grandfather, like what he's like as a person, look at the movie To Kill a Mockingbird because he's exactly like like that is just to the T exactly what he was like. Uh, and then, you know, saw them. I saw the movie and then I read the book and there were certain descriptions in the book that were word for word descriptions of him. I mean, even things that he did. Um, one of the things that I remember like they being real shocking was they talk about him. Uh, taking for payment because he represents a lot of uh, farmers and stuff taking for payments uh, uh, li- certain livestock and there's a sto- there's a, a thing about I think it was a pig that he takes in or whatever uh, and it's an exact story from my grandfather like literally word for word a, a story that happened with my grandfather uh, and then I found out that uh, that um, oh what is her name <laughs> the author of the uh, Harper of, Lee. To go- Harper Lee, thank you. That Harper Lee was uh, hanging out with Truman Capote during this time that I happen to know Truman Capote was fascinated by this case. He was actually traveling around, and he apparently was uh, reading these newspapers about this case in the October of, of '58 when my grandfather was, you know, representing Carol. Apparently, he was reading all about this case during the time when my grandfather was all over the newspaper, and Harper was with him all the time. Once I saw that and I kind of put the pieces together, I was like, hey, wait a second. This is a this is a spookily, you know, like even the physical description of uh, of that character of Atticus Finch matches my grandfather a lot. And so I, w- I always was wondering, it's like, did, did you have some inspiration? So I wrote to her, but, you know, she uh, was infamously uh, reclusive, so she never responded. But um, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of get the idea not kind of. I, I have a suspicion that she took some inspiration from my grandfather uh, in creating Atticus Finch. I don't have any proof of that. I'd love to have had it. Um, I know that some of the, inf- the inspiration comes from her own father, but there's so many coincidences. I know she was seeing the, the newspapers about, my, about the case at the time my grandfather was in those newspapers. So I, I just can't help but wonder if, if you know, I, I have a suspicion that there that that was some inspiration for that as well. Well, and I again, I haven't read it. I've certainly read uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and see the movie several times, uh, but I've never read any background, so I'm not sure what if it. You know, if her father is an inspiration or grandfather, uh, if um, he was a similar. I mean, similar probably small time lawyer, but the connection yeah. that I'm now seeing between To Kill a Mockingbird and the the Fugate case. Is the uh, and you write you know around the edges about it that uh, taking this case, uh, taking cases that obviously not not a lot of people well nobody wanted to do it for money or for free, and some right. people didn't want to do it for money, and that it certainly it didn't make him any friends in the community, correct? 
Right. Oh, in fact, I mean, there were people who just were hateful about it. Oh, uh, my mom, even my mom, who was not involved in the case, just the fact that she was dating the son of the attorney who was uh, representing Carol, lost friends. There were people who wouldn't have anything to do with her. And that's two degrees away from it. Uh, and this is before he was, you know, involved in the case. Uh, my, yeah, my grandfather just, he went from being, you know, this highly respected person around town to just villainized. Uh, yeah, everybody, and he got death threats. I mean, I, in fact, I was just recently going over some of the notes in one of the boxes and we were, you know, going through the deaths, the death threat section, uh, and kind of laughing about some of them, but Anyway, yeah, he and th there really are a, a number of uh, similarities in the way that the community reacted in the book uh, and the way they reacted, you know, to my grandfather. I mean, it was always whenever I'd read that, I'd be like, read it or watch the movie or whatever. It, it <laughs> very much resembled it. And also, unfortunately, the outcome of both, you know, uh, I give credit to Harper Lee, whether it's a real story or not, that she decided not for it to have a happy ending. She wanted to have a realistic right. ending. And that guy, yeah. like like Carol, that 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 um, uh, Brock Peters was the actor's name, um, the, uh, accused of the rape. Uh, he was screwed from the beginning. And there's no way, right. I don't care if, you know, Atticus Finch was the greatest lawyer in the world. I think he knew it. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if the, the poor, uh, you know, uh, prisoner knew it. But in that time, in that day, uh, it's just not going to happen. Whereas with, your, with the Carol Fugate, it's not so much prejudice or whatever. It's the horrendousness of the crime. But the same issue, like you said, right from the beginning, prosecutors weren't going for justice. They're going for conviction. Wow. Well, listen, we've been we've been chatting for over an hour. Uh, it's been very informative. I, it would come up with lots of more idea. But I do uh, again for my my listeners out there. I say this all the time, but I, I pick up a book. It, it interests me and I, I want to get someone connected. And I certainly did. I, in spades this time but our little chat even though it's with the author does not do justice to something that you can sit down see the words on the page go back and reread sections which i of course done uh did uh dog ear the book and go back and look at certain uh, uh passages that move you or, or raise questions so what i'm going to do before we leave is i'm aside from the book as i say is pro bono and you can get it at barnes and noble you can get it at amazon and uh, so do you have i forget how i got you i think i got you through facebook but do you have just facebook or do you have a website where people can uh, leave comments or questions for you Yes, uh, bandwagononline.com is uh, the website for that. If you want to find me on uh, on Facebook, I'm Jeff MacArthur Author. J-E-F-F -F <laughs> MacArthur, M-C, big A-R-T-H-U-R, and uh, it's author, and you can get, and that will take you to his Facebook page. I left a message, and Jeff got back to me. Um, so again, is there anything you want to say in wrapping up? Anything you felt we didn't hit? Oh, let's see. I think we got everything. You know, it's it, in general, this is a the, the thing that I've always felt is uh, very relevant about this case is um, was, is the fact that it it really it, to me, it's it. it um, sorry, <laughs> my okay. brain is a little fried today. Uh, to me, what's fascinating about this case is that it, it asks the very question of truth of because like uh, like we talked about it the, the uh, issues of 
what happened were never uh, at issue here. It was never questioned. It was a matter of intent. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that uh, what's really important when thinking about this story is because one can look at it and argue about the cases of uh, the instance of is Carol guilty, is she not? But to me, what makes it relevant in our in our lives today is the idea of what what makes something guilt uh, is, you know, is it the fact that you were there, that you could have done something, but you didn't? Uh, if that is guilt, then OK, then we need to uh, um, that needs to apply to all people and not just to those on the wrong side of the track. But our people, well, we'll, we'll just sort of let them slide. Um, yeah, to me, that's that's what makes this case relevant to this day and, you know, always will be. Through to the badlands of Wyoming, I killed everything in my path. I can't say that I'm sorry for the things that we done. At least for a little while, sir, me and her, we had us some fun. Now the jury brought in a guilty verdict, and the judge, he sentenced me to death. Midnight in a prison storeroom, with leather straps across my chest, Sheriff, when the man pulls that switch, sir, and snaps my poor head back, you make sure my pretty baby is sitting right there on my lap. Those words are from the song Nebraska by the boss, Bruce Springsteen, his ode to the exploits of Charles Starkweather. Contrary to Charlie's wishes, Carol Ann Fugate was not on his lap when the executioner pulled the switch. Carol served 17 years of her 18-year sentence. A model prisoner, she was paroled in 1976. Was she a willing accomplice or a hostage? That will be up to history and you to decide. I want to thank my guest, Jeff MacArthur, for his insight on the case. Please visit the show's website at www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. I'll let the boss take us out now with a sampling from Nebraska. In the meantime, until next time, stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. Midnight in the prison storeroom With leather straps across my chest Sheriff, when the man pulls that switch And snaps my whole neck back you make sure my pretty baby sitting right.